Felipe Cabral. Looks to talk with him. Plays it ahead. Hello Ramblers, Andy here and welcome to the latest Ramble Meets where I was lucky enough to spend some time talking to Red Bull Salzburg head coach Jesse Marsh. Now Jesse has got an absolutely fascinating story that he tells in a really engaging way so I'm sure you're going to enjoy it all the way from Wisconsin via NYC with Ranić and Julier now into Europe working with Hurling Holland and making a really exciting Champions League impact with Red Bull Salzburg. He also talks about how he's kind of breaking down barriers, although he himself wouldn't put it in quite that way, for US coaches in Europe. This is Ramble Meets Jesse Marsh. So, Jesse, when um, I was doing a bit of light research around your life and career um, when we knew we were doing this, the first place I obviously went was to your Twitter bio, and I particularly enjoyed the bio saying soccer coach and fan. Now, how much do you still feel like that, particularly in this season when there is an incredible amount of football? Yeah, maybe it should be the other way around, soccer fan first. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is where um, I, I, I've been, I feel like I've been able to live out a dream, right? And, and there's uh, coming to Europe to be a, a coach and a manager, uh, having the opportunities that I've had through Red Bull um, and being to, to have a family, travel the world, support my, my lifestyle only through this sport. Like how crazy, you know, any of us that, that are lucky enough to, to, to feed our families and whatnot by, by chasing a, a ball around uh, grass. So um, yeah, at the, at the core, I still believe that, you know, and, and my wife could probably tell you the same because we're always watching games at night and, and the, and it's always on the, the television. So um, in general, this has been a, an incredible adventure. Um, and I'm very fortunate to, to be able to, as a profession, do this for a living. And it's funny because even in, in about, I was about 26. So it was probably 19, it was probably around 2000 that I was considering going to business school and pursuing another walk of life, following in the footsteps a lot of, of a lot of my Princeton school mates and friends. And, and then I kind of thought about waking up in the morning and not stepping onto a pitch and smelling the grass and chasing that ball around. And I, and then I decided quickly, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to pursue this as a long, long life, lifelong dream. You talked about Princeton there, Jesse, and that's what started your route, I suppose, into the professional game. I mean, there are different schools of thought around coaching in Europe and the background of coaches in Europe. And here in England, it's often painted as, you know, traditional football men. So I guess pro players from the past versus more intellectual thinkers about the game who perhaps didn't have that same background in the professional game I guess what we call technocrats but because you came out of the college system because you went to an Ivy League college because there's clearly a high intellectual level to meet there but having had a good playing career do you feel like you're kind of in the middle of those two ideas of coaching 
Well, you know, let me start. When, when you're an athlete at Princeton, you're the dumbest kid in the room. And when you're an <laughs> athlete from Princeton, you're the smartest kid in the room. <laughs> and I think I fall definitely somewhere in the middle from those, those uh, monikers. But, um, you know, in Germany, what they call them are laptop coaches, are the guys that are always yeah. in the video and statistics and 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 I I do love that you know I love the analytics um, and I work a lot with our video and analytic, analytics team here to to make sure that whatever we're doing that we're including those types of things, but certainly I think anyone who knows me knows that the competitive juices inside of me are also what really drives drives uh, the coach that I am so. Um, I think I try to always, uh, it's important as a coach to always, uh, find solutions for your team. Um, especially when, you know, after losses or after tough moments or during tough moments. And so I use, I think that sort of analytical intellectual approach to always be thinking about what are the next steps? How do we get better? How do I get better? Um, and then, you know, in there also not lose the, the uh, attention to, to the fact that you have to compete and always want to be better than the opponent. So, yeah, I think I hope so. I hope that that's a big part of who I am. And of course, you worked famously under Bob Bradley at, at Princeton, who's a big Princeton guy as, as well. How much did he put the seed in your head of potentially becoming a coach somewhere down the line? Was that already there? And how did he change your view of what a coach should do and what coaching is about? Yeah. I mean, growing up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, I had really good coaches and a lot of them helped me with the fundamentals of the game. I played for youth national teams. And so I was exposed to high level youth football when, before I went to Princeton, but Bob was the first guy who made me think about it as more than just playing the sport for fun. He demanded that the work you put into training every day, the work you put into getting better, the, the, the mentality of what it was like to train hard and, and push yourself every day. He really was the first to introduce that to me. And, and, you know, in that process for myself, it's when I really started to develop and grow uh, at a faster rate and yes, that also introduced to me as, as a leader, because I, I, I believe that I had natural leadership qualities as a leader. What would that be like to try and, and run my own team and to try to see if I could push a group to be as good as they could possibly be. I often describe my professional career as a research project in leadership because I, I won a lot and I was on good teams. I was a good player, but I wasn't a great player. I wasn't a difference maker. Um, and the way that I tried to still um, be a difference was by the organization of the team, the, the leadership, the, the, the ability for people to look at me and see, follow me as an example, but also heed to the things that I believe were important. And, and again, a lot of those, I think I learned from a, an earlier age from, from being around Bob. So, you know, Bob is good at that. Bob is, uh, I think anyone who's played for him or been around for him understands the relentlessness at which Bob approaches his life and, and the game. And, and I think that I've tried in my own way, express my passion through coaching in the ways that I think um, are valuable to a team to be successful. I mean, now, clearly, you know him very well from the beginning at Princeton. You worked as an assistant to him as well. So he's had an influence on your career. But when you look at when he 
moved away and started to make steps in the European game. You look at especially the good jobs. A lot of people think of Swansea, but he did really good jobs at Stavak. He did a really good job at Lav as well. But did the sort of jobs that even such a respected American coach as him was getting, with no disrespect to those clubs, did it show you and the rest of American, uh, rest of US soccer how difficult it is for American coaches to make headway in Europe? Well, I think first it, it opened, for me, when I always thought about being a, a, a coach or a manager when I was done playing, I thought about MLS, I thought maybe about university. I, I didn't think about, I, it, it, the threshold wasn't there to go to Europe, really wasn't. So Bob, I think, inspired a lot of us to think like, maybe if we can be successful at our own levels, that we can dream that Europe is, is a frontier that we can achieve. Um, so I think first that was an inspiration. And then second, yeah, I mean, uh, witnessing, you know, how he was treated, um, I think shaped, uh, uh, my idea of how to try to adapt here once I arrived. Um, so, but I, I look at Bob's history as Bob's history. Right. And I, and, and I feel bad for Bob because I know how hard he works and how much he puts into it and, and how unfair the situation was for him at Swansea. I think there's some things that I can learn from it, but I still think I have to carve out my own path and I have to figure out in ways how to be me and how to um, use my experiences to honor whatever job I have. And so that's certainly what I've done here in Salzburg is, is to learn the language, to learn the community, to learn about the history of the club and to make sure that the work that we do here is a reflection of that. So, um, but again, mostly when I look at Bob, it's, it's as an inspiration. Well, of course, you touched on language there, and obviously you're really big on communication, as any coach should be, um, but you seem particularly so. I mean, one of the things that Bob was criticised for, which always seemed a bit ridiculous and trite to me, was certain lexicon that he would use, I guess that was from a US background, and I felt that... Like, English people, English media were a little bit snobbish about that. Like stuff like, I don't know, when he was talking about away games, he'd maybe say road games, where they knew exactly what he meant, but they decided to make a big thing of it. I mean, in terms of how you project yourself, how important is European football lexicon as opposed to US soccer lexicon, do you think? Well, it's funny. When I was in my, so I got my, uh, my pro license, UEFA pro license in Scotland. And I did a present, I did one presentation before the group and I talked, I can't remember exactly what the topic was, but I used the word PK and, or I wrote PK, I think on a table. And then after I was presenting for a little bit, then one guy raised his hand and he, and he pointed to the table and, uh, and he said, what, what is, what's a PK? And, the, and there was uproarious laughter about the American not writing penalty and writing PK. So, I mean, you know, we laughed and I laughed too. And, and, but, you know, it's, it's somewhat ridiculous, right? And so, but certainly when I've come here to, to Germany and Austria, um, learning the language and being able to express myself clearly in the language and is, is a big part of the success that we've had. Um, I felt like when I was in the U S and as an American, I got very good at understanding, you know, how to emphasize sentences, what vocabulary to use, how to communicate very cleanly and efficiently so that everybody 
understood what we were trying to achieve and was locked in uh, to, to, and focused with the targets and, the, uh, um, and what we wanted to achieve. Trying to express that in German is incredibly difficult, you know? Um, but I've also realized that one of the advantages of, of how I use the language is I'm constantly trying to learn and get better at the language. The team and the team knows that, and I use it as an example a lot of improvement and development uh, and, and vulnerability. And I'm and I'm constantly challenging them to help me express myself better. Or, or if I'm in a meeting and I say, "Did I say that right?" and they'll say, "Yeah, well," or you could say it like this. And so they're actually invested in my development in the same way I'm invested in their development. And it's had a really magical effect, I think, on our overall. Um, uh, team mentality and, and team environment um, that this relentless pursuit of, of improvement and, and, and it's okay to, to be wrong. It's okay to make mistakes and that we're, we're all trying to improve along the way. So um, it's been an interesting process that way. Um, and I, and I know the guys um, you know, I know they have plenty of jokes about my German, <laughs> <laughs> but it's okay. Sometimes I even play into those jokes because, you know, the, the more that we feel like we're a strong unit and that we can make fun of each other, but that we can enjoy each other and that we can commit to each other. I think it, um, it really only enhances what we're trying to achieve. Vielleicht zwei. Yeah? Es ist nicht ein fucking Freundschaftsspiel. Yeah? Es ist ein fucking Champions League Spiel. Wir müssen Cooper League auf dem Platz and get fucking stuck in with Druck. Diese Aktion, manchmal mit Van Dyke, ja, komm Jungs, zu viel Respekt für die Gegner, zu viel Respekt für die Gegner. In terms of that cultural adaptation, how important was the time you took out with your family to travel the world after leaving the Montreal Impact? Yeah, I mean, listen, first, the, the ability to spend time with my family in this in this crazy world that we live in where you know, it's, it goes from game to game to game and everything happens so fast. And you talked about it in, especially now in COVID times, it's like the games are nonstop. So it's a very alternate universe we're living in, alternative universe we're living in here. Um, so first that. Second, for me personally, I think experiencing everything that was going on around the world and, and cultures and learning about religions and languages and everything made me understand that nobody cared. 99% of the world could care less what my record is or how many games my teams have won or where I played or any of this crap, right? So it gave me really good perspective to understand that it's a job. It's a fun job and an important job, but it's a job and I have a job to do and I can, I have to do it to the best of my ability. And then I have to enjoy my life. Um, and then the, the last part was, I think really, um, understanding people and, and, and learning about cultures and places and, and how people deal with adversity and, and success and, and, you know, looking at it from different perspectives um, as to what it might mean in my job and in, in a job that has so many different cultures. Um, and I think that uh, my ability to communicate and relate with people from different places has been a big part of my leadership and success. So, um, it's not to say that just because I visited Korea three times that I know what it's like to, to grow up in Korea, but at least I have a little bit of a window, you know, and I've seen certain things and I understand certain things from a cultural perspective that I would never have been able to know or experience without, without being there. So, 
yeah, I just try in my own little way to continue to grow and learn and, and adapt and, and help people um, in this business. So after the trip, you went back to Princeton, but in 2015, you end up getting the New York Red Bulls job. Um, how much of a different experience was it going into a job, feeling a bit refreshed, having stepped out of the bubble? Did that affect the way you looked at it compared to the way you approach the job in Montreal? I think no question. Um, and one of the things with a refreshed mentality and, and, and healthiness, I think I was able to clearly execute the plan that I, w- I wanted in, in the way that I wanted it to be executed and be the leader that I wanted to be, you know? And, and of course, we're always put in stressful situations, but I was able to, I think, refocus and, and recommit to, to the person and leader that I, that I wanted to be. And so, um, and, and that can't be, um, overestimated or, or overemphasized. Um, and I think, you know, all of us as coaches, when we get put in the, in the pressure cooker that a lot of times we do and say things that maybe aren't perfectly a reflection of what we want to be, and it's important that we're, we can self-evaluate and always look at things fr- from a clear perspective so that we're able to ultimately um, be the example that we want. And so I even ask myself that now, you know, it's, it's been a really good two years. It's been a really good consecutive six years that I've been in Red Bull and we've had, I've had a lot of success in the time that I've been doing things. I've got to at some point think about where I go from here and what are the next steps. And I certainly need to really be able to reflect on exactly who I want to be as I go from, from, you know, every stage of my career and every step and and every job. So the job, the work here is not done yet, but I think, and certainly the reflection and and self-evaluation isn't even close to done, but I think I always have to be really good at, at, at self-evaluating. And when you talk about steps on and steps up, I mean, from the moment you interview for the Red Bulls job, I mean, the interview, you're, you're in the room faced with Ralph Ranić and Gerard Ullier. I mean, how did that make you feel, firstly, in that interview? And secondly, once you actually get your teeth into the job, what role did the pair of them play in your day-to-day at, at NYC? Well, it's interesting, you know, I'm a, I'm a boy from Milwaukee, Racine, Wisconsin, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, I didn't know anyone famous growing up. I would never introduce to anyone of real power. And I don't want to, even the way you talk about, like I had a great, like my upbringing was fantastic. It was very normal. I was put in uh, situations where I just had to exist on, on, you know, nothing to do with my family or how much money we had or how good of a sportler I was or any of this. It was just, who's the person that I want to be. I go to a place like Princeton and now I'm meeting people who the, the son of uh, the CEO of IBM, the, you know, one of the richest people in the world, their daughter. And, and so I'm going out to dinner with families and with, with established people in different professions and in different walks of life. And one of the things that I was able to gather at Princeton was that these people are all pretty normal and actually their appreciation of the people that we are was much higher than, than I would have thought. And they were, they were more engaged about learning about us than we were about them. And I thought that to be really cool. And what I realized from that is people are people, right? Regardless of, of how successful they are in a certain walk of life, 
um, that in the end, there's still the human element that is so common amongst all of us. And so I've taken that with me in my football experiences, you know? And so when I sit in the room with Ralph Rangnick and Gerard Houllier, it wasn't like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm in front of these guys. It was like, what a, what a cool opportunity to now share some experiences, talk about football, see what they have to say. And, and, and I just, more, more than even an interview, I, I took it as an opportunity to learn and to express who I think I am. And I think when I walked away from that, that was one of the things that they were most impressed by is, is the ease at which I was able to, to discuss who I am and what I want to be and how it might fit with the project that, that New York Red Bulls was. So, and I think, I still think that now, like even being here in Europe or when we're, we're preparing for Champions League or stepping on the field at Anfield or at, at, at Allianz Arena, I'm not thinking about how big of a moment these are. I'm thinking more about making sure that our guys are prepared to face the task at hand and that we can do that. I'm doing everything I can to give them enough confidence and preparation so that they can perform at their highest level point. (laughs) So that's a fun challenge. And when you can stay focused on the things that matter, I think you can also impact ultimately how to be successful. Rangnick's got a huge amount of influence or did have a huge amount of influence on the whole Red Bull project uh, over all the different clubs. Um, In 2018, you end up going and being his assistant when he re-becomes the coach at RB Leipzig. So how does that work? Because it's it's your leap to Europe, but some would say, especially after the the record you posted um, in NYC, how do you avoid the the sense of that feeling a step down in that you're not the bottom line for the first team anymore. And what do you learn from Ranić when you work from him on a day-to-day basis with, with Leipzig in the Bundesliga? Yeah. So, for, I mean, most of the, uh, listen, I learned so much from Ralph, but most of what I learned from Ralph was during my time in New York. Right. And then when we would have the chance to meet after a season or, or a conversation in the middle of the season about what we were trying to achieve and the football we were playing most of my learning from him took place in that time. When I came to Leipzig, it was more about trying to help him and the team be successful. And, and of course, it was helpful for me to adapt to, to the rhythm of European football, to the rhythm of the Bundesliga, to learn about the league, to adapt to the level. Um, so I, I believe that that was a very important time for me. But honestly, it was more about me helping the team be successful. And that's the way I approached it. And it's for me, it's regardless of whether you're the head coach or the assistant coach. You, it's, it's, it's more about adapting your role in the way that it needs to be to give the players and the team the best chance to grow, get better and to, to win. And so that was so much what my time in Leipzig was about. Now, I will say the pedigree, yeah, in my career of having a successful year as an assistant coach in the Bundesliga at Leipzig under Ralph Rangnick still matters, right? So when I come to a place like Salzburg, if I don't have that experience, then people might not, everything from sport directors to players to fans might have a different uh, opinion of who I am based on my history. 
Um, but I think there was a little bit, there was, there were some negative things in Salzburg about coming to Leipzig as well, because they don't like in, in many ways, the fact that Salzburg and Leipzig are so closely related in terms of players moving there. But in the end, I think it, it helped me establish myself and at least gave me a chance to, 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 it gave the team a chance and my work a chance with the team. It gave us a chance to establish ourselves and show that we know what we're doing and that we can be a good team. Tell me about the wheel of punishment that you introduced at uh, <laughs> yeah. Leipzig. That got overplayed a little bit in Leipzig and, and we developed it in, in New York. And I'll, and I'll take you through why I'm saying this. In New York, what it was is, you know, I, I, for, personally, I don't like taking the player's money, right? And, and I don't even want to create an environment that's all about you have to show up on time and you have to do this and you have to do that. I want the player's to give responsibility to the team and to the group because they feel that, that responsibility themselves, not because the coach said, here are the rules, right? And I have a lot, I implement a lot of programs within the team to make it more a, a commitment to the group than it is just following the rules of the coach. But in New York, what we did, it, it was more of a way to motivate and embarrass the players, right? So that, you know, uh, and, and, and at the same time, some of the penalties were rewarding some of the staff. Like, you know, we had a six pack of beer on there for the field guys. We had a bottle of wine for the woman who took care of the food and, and the facility every day, you know, but then we had things like they had to dance for 15 seconds in front of the group. They had to pick another player to pay a fine. They had to, you know, there was a higher fine on there as well. And, and a, a, a bunch of different things, but it was, it was more the fear of having to roll the wheel because they were exposing themselves in front of the group in some way, shape or form. But then at the same time, creating a stronger bond together. Well, when I introduced it to, to the way that they wanted to do it in Germany, it became more about creating strict um, rules about um, helping the field guys paint the field or going into the fan shop. And, and some of the things were okay. Um, but it was certainly a different, a little bit different um, angle to look at it. But this is a little bit the difference between being in America and what you think of a fine system and being in Germany and what you think of a fine system. Germans naturally want to be more strict and want to create more responsibility through something like this than Americans do. So, and again, this is a, this is a part of when I talk about traveling the world or representing a, a club, you have to really understand the people that you're working with and what drives them, what motivates them, and what, what makes them successful. And then, and then also the strengths and weaknesses and how to continue to push the environment and the culture in the right way so that in the end, you can be, become something that's unique and special and successful. So the plan originally was for you to stay and do a second season at Leipzig under Julian Nagelsmann after he arrived, but you get the Salzburg opportunity instead. First season in the Champions League. Now, you said elsewhere that when you arrived, you said, right, Salzburg have to be a Champions League team every year. What sort of impact does saying that have on a club that had got so close to the groups and missed out agonisingly so many times before? Well, after what, when I said that was after we had our first season in Champions League and we fell a little bit, sh a, a little bit short against Lever Liverpool in that last game. And what I said is once we've now had the, our club, we've had the taste of Champions League, like we should never think that going back to Europa League is okay. <laughs> now, that's a lofty goal, obviously. Um, 
But even, you know, in Germany and Austria, the cultures are different, but there's a lot of similarities in the way that the, the people operate. And, and one similarity is that people don't like to say ambitious things out loud, right? They're worried that by doing that, they're opening themselves up for criticism um, and, and that they're being overly arrogant. Um, now, as an American, arrogance is, is obviously a good and a bad thing, right? And, and I've often been accused of being arrogant as an American or as independent of being an American. I look at it as ambitious. And, and I think, how, how can you want to achieve lofty goals if you don't want to talk about them? And obviously, yeah, we're not going to achieve every lofty goal that we set. But for me, there's absolutely nothing wrong with saying we want to be a Champions League club every year. And actually, I believe that there's benefits to creating those goals and to talking about them out loud and to working toward achieving them every day. Like for me, the brain and psychologists will often tell you it's not about creating lofty goals, but it's about creating a pathway for the human being to understand how do we become successful? And so for me, the goal is always there in the distance. And then it's about creating these small little measurables step by step by step. So you can get to those lofty goals, but in the end, the motivation has to be the ultimate. So um, I know that's the way I think, you know, I'm not afraid of, of saying things out loud. I'm not afraid of being accused of being arrogant, but in the end, it's still about working toward every day as hard as we possibly can intelligently to get to the places that we want to be. So tell us about that first group game in the Champions League, back when we still had fans in stadiums, of course. It must have been an incredible night. You play Genk, and it really is best foot forward. You beat them 6-2. It's a game that really grabs the attention of all of Europe when with all due respect to the fixture, I don't think a lot of neutral fans would have looked at Salzburg versus Genk coming into the round and thought, right, that's a, a game that I'm going to watch. But you make headlines. Erling Haaland makes headlines. Tell us about it. What's the, what's the feeling a, a, around that after it's yeah. happened? Well, the, the, first you have to look at the mindset of the club at that time. Okay. Um, a new coach came in, an American coach. Uh, we lost nine of our starters from the season before. Um, we had finally gotten to the group stage of Champions League after 14 years and 11 tries. Um, and, I, and I described it as uh, the stadium was full an hour before the game. And I swear that most of the people were there just so they could hear the, the anthem, the Champions League anthem. And then once the anthem was over, there was this anxiety in the stadium, almost like waiting for failure to happen one more time after uh, missing out on all the qualification rounds. And then two minutes in the game, Erling Holland scores and the stadium is electric, right? And then uh, shortly after that, we score again and it's 2-0. And, and then you could just feel the momentum gathering in the stadium and the belief. And at halftime, it's five to one. <laughs> Erling Holland has uh, already scored a hat trick. Um, the team has performed, you know, well beyond anyone had what anyone had, had hoped. And I think that, that moment was an incredibly important moment in people's lives, but in the history of this club as well. Um, certainly Erling Holland, that was a coming out party for him, a, a hat trick in his first Champions League game. Um, for me as an American, the first American coach to, to coach in Champions League. And then 
also an opportunity, not just for our club to be successful, but to also um, a platform to really show our style of play. Right. And I think that was one of the, one of the things that people really latched onto as well to score six goals in our first game. So yeah, in general, what a big night, um, an important night for many of us and, and one that we'll look back on very fondly. That's for sure. Center half on the charge. On the pass away too. Oh, and Harman! Well, you really took that opportunity with both hands throughout that Champions League season. But with Holland's name exploding everywhere, and obviously it's it's different, whereas it would be a rumour that built momentum like maybe 15 years ago. Now it's all on the internet and all over Twitter and all over Instagram like 10 minutes later. I mean, how was that for you, knowing that you've got this player that's this irresistible force that everyone's kind of pulling away from Salzburg. I mean, how do you avoid in that situation becoming the team that Erling Haaland's at, if you see what I mean? Yeah. Well, I think that that was part of the, the situation, right? As, as we were, we were the Erling Haaland show. Um, but what, what made it, I think, really important was that Erling's commitment to the group was so strong. And I talked to him a lot in, in those, phases um, that, that, you know, his energy every day in training, um, he was at the time giving a lot of uh, penalties to different players, sharing the success within the group in, in the media, really talking about the team a lot, emphasizing the group. You know, I, w- I was talking with him about that, but it only took small reminders because that's who Erling is. And then for me, it was also managing that inside the team and then outside in the media. Um, but again, it, it was also Erling was playing well, but the whole team was really performing well. So I think it, 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 you're right in the, in the fact that it required some managing, and I was very much aware of that. But at the same time, um, we had the right group, we had the right young men, and, and we had a good team. So I think it all worked together in the right way. And despite all the changes you again catch the eye in the Champions League this season. Now, you talked about the the pain of the morning after the games against Atletico, where you, you could have won in Madrid, and Bayern, particularly afterwards, where you play well but end up losing 6-2 after this late flurry. I mean, how do you process this and move on in a season like this where the calendar's so pressed and there's, there's not really that much room for analysis? It's like play, rest, play, rest. Yeah, for sure. Um... I describe Champions League as a tournament I love and a tournament I hate. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, So the emotions um, in the biggest games are heavy, you know, and and in both directions. Um, Whether it was qualifying when we played against Tel Aviv and and getting into Champions League again in in this last year, uh, whether it was losing to Bayern 6-2 or, or losing to Liverpool at home last year 2-0 to get knocked out. Um, but it's important as a coach, and when I talked before about really having your mind on finding solutions, it's important to remove the emotion, really look at games for what they are and to learn from successes and failures. 
And, and that's a big part of our success here, I think, is really with a young team, always thinking about development and always thinking about how to get better. And, you know, I mean, a lot of people were drawn toward, toward the, the halftime speech I gave at Liverpool the, in the first year. But the, at the core of what that talk was with the, with the team was before we went there, we said, let's not care about the result. Like, we're not expected to win. Who cares? Um, let's play our football. Let's play to our best ability. Let's focus on being the best versions of ourselves that we can possibly be. And guess what? If we want to win, the best way to do that is to execute that part of the plan as best as we possibly can. That gives us the best chance. And, and what was so gratifying after that game was the way we responded after going down 3-0. I think we, we actually committed more to trying to play the way that we wanted to, and we gave ourselves a chance in the game. And I think in the, in the, in, in the meantime, I think inspired our fans and a lot of people around the world as to what this club is and the potential of who we can be. So that's, that's at the core of, of what I believe in, in in what this business is in general. So how has the pandemic changed your way of working, though, having less time with the players, and especially at a club like Salzburg, where you're forever turning over players? The model is you use young players. Yeah. And that, that means there's quite a high turnover of teams. So presumably you've got to absorb new players, figure out the philosophy for them and their way of fitting into it. How much of a challenge has that been? It's been a big challenge. Um, and, you know, but it's really forced uh, me and us to be innovative. You know, everything from when we got out of the lockdown and we could only train in small groups, how to create training that was going to be effective to help us prepare for the, for the next round of games. What were the advantages of disadvantages of playing in fans or not? Um, how to encourage our team to, to be self-motivated, to adapt, to grow in an environment that nobody knew how to handle, right? So in some ways, I think um, those are situations that I'd like to be in and that I can thrive in because I'm constantly challenging myself and, and our group and us together as to how, to how to manage it the best, better than anyone and how to learn from the situation. So if you're a truly a coach that believes in learning and development, then getting put in very unfamiliar situations is actually exactly what you need to get better. So um, that sounds like mumbo jumbo and philosophical crap a lot, but it's true. It's true. And it's, it's at the core of who I want to be. So yeah. Yeah. I, I think we've managed actually this time really quite well. So finally, Jesse, what's next and how far do you think the club can go? Yeah, I mean, right now, what's next is um, managing the Meisterrunde here, the, the championship uh, phase of our league. Um, and we want to win the double again um, and finish two successful years with my time here in, the, in a way with, with saying that we've achieved uh, almost everything that we've wanted. Um, you know, and then, and then there's always just taking the time to evaluate at this club, who are the next young players that are ready to establish themselves? Which players are we ready to, to commit to helping them make the next step to another big club? Um, and how to, how to continue to uh, evaluate and push everything from our style of play to our mentality, to our academy, to our scouting, in every, every area of what we do, trying to, to get better and, and push the envelope and and, you know, when I say getting back to Champions League every year, being a Champions League team every year, 
also in there is, is me thinking about how to get out of the group phase, right? How to get into that round of 16 and, and then go through the process of playing the best teams in the world and trying to manage that, that home and away leg. So, but it's, it's always gotta be, I think about stepping in, stepping out of our comfort zone and, and, and pushing this to, to the next step. It, it does feel actually that as, as if you're really invested in the players as being part of their journey. So not just them at Salzburg. So d- does it give you pride to see what, um, Holland and uh, Huang and now Shobhajlai when he gets fit uh, are doing as they go on. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I consider myself not just a winner, but a, an expert in, in developing talent. And that's what I've done now for a number of years. So for sure, that's a big source of pride for our club. I think everyone now knows that Salzburg is a big part of, of Erling Holland's development. Um, and then you know, in general, I think we, we try to focus on the individual, but without compromising what we're trying to achieve as the team of, uh, in the team. So that's, that's a big part of who I am. And I think that's a big part of what we are. Well, look, thanks so much for your time, Jesse, and, um, best of luck for the rest of the season. All right. Thanks a lot. This was a lot of fun and really good questions. Thanks. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creative Network.